A winter storm approaches the small town of Collinsport, Maine. Its cold winds rattle the windows of the small cottages that dot the coastline. And yet, these frigid and tempestuous winds cannot match the eerie cold that surrounds the centuries-old mansion on the hill. For that is an unnatural cold. The cold of the grave. The cold that must end in terror at Collinwood. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I want to wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. Uh, My late husband was Jewish, so we celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas together. We combined, we joined forces, we lit the menorah, and we lit the Christmas tree. Uh, So we did both. So whatever you do, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season, and I wanted a really special episode for Christmas time. And boy, are you in for a treat. I think this episode is just really perfect for the holiday season. So uh, I look forward to getting to it. Before we get to that, I do want to say all episodes of this podcast probably will contain spoilers for Dark Shadows. I always joke that there should be a moratorium on spoilers after like 20 years. And since Dark Shadows is over 50 years old, I I assumed I didn't, you know, really need to put spoilers in there. But I received uh, requests uh, asking for spoiler warnings. uh, And I get that a lot of people are discovering the show or exploring new storylines that they haven't watched yet. So there are spoilers in this podcast, okay? Somebody gave me a one-star review on um, Apple Podcasts for that reason. Okay, going forward, please be aware. There will be spoilers. Let's get on with the show. I am joined by a legendary, a heroic figure in the Dark Shadows fandom, Kathleen Resch. Kathy is not only a legendary figure, she is an inspiration. She was someone who actually inspired me to do this podcast through her amazing The World of Dark Shadows fanzine. And I I like to think I'm trying to keep that spirit alive in podcast form here. Without Kathy's efforts, Dark Shadows fandom surely would not exist in its current state. In 1975, she founded Dark Shadows fanzine, The World of Dark Shadows, which ran for 26 years up until 2001. In addition, through her Pentagram Publications imprint, she published the incredible Dark Shadows Concordances and several fanfic publications as well. Uh, Along with Marcy Robin of Shadowgram, Kathy was instrumental in helping to found and run the Dark Shadows festivals, having been heavily involved with ShadowCon even prior to the festivals. Kathy has been a huge inspiration to many fans out there, including myself. And I'm thrilled and honored to welcome you to the show, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. Oh my goodness. Wow. I I was talking to you just prior to recording. I'd always really look forward to getting those world, the world of dark shadows fanzines uh, in the mail. And I would love, you know, reading about all the different topics in there. Are you still continuing your enjoyment of dark shadows uh, through online or? I am. I occasionally read fiction. I would you know, have not had a lot of time lately because I've got a very demanding job. So that's mm-hmm. kind of put a lot of things on hold. But, uh, you know, I do enjoy uh, staying involved in Dark Shadows any way I can uh, through the time available. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do see uh, in the Facebook groups, you do uh, continue to share the Shadowgram uh, updates in digital form there. So that is very much appreciated. And I'm glad to see you continuing uh, to do that. Now, uh, let's let's go back to the beginning here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I have to say, I'm, I'm geeking out. It's like, you're this fan, fangirl geek out right here because I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I'd love to hear about your background with Dark Shadows. Like what got you into Dark Shadows in the first place? How did you discover this world? Well, it was in the summer of 1968. I was 13 at the time. Uh, I've read and heard a lot of people describe how they got into Dark Shadows. Uh, This is uh, not your usual middle class way of getting into a fandom, but uh, or watching a show. Uh, But it was between my freshman and sophomore years. I had skipped two grades, so I was two years younger than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that summer, my friend Mary said, you know, let's go visit Julie. Julie's 16. She just had a baby. Let's go visit Julie. She's not coming back to school in the fall because, you know, she just had a baby and they won't let her back in. And we went to visit Julie to go see the new baby. And we're just kind of ooing and eyeing and, you know, doing all the regular cooling over this baby when, um, and she was living, you know, in this uh, tiny little apartment over a tiny little uh, grocery store with her uh, boyfriend. And around one o'clock that afternoon, because this was in Mountain Standard Time or Mountain, yeah, Mountain Standard Time, one o'clock is when Dark Shadows aired. And that would be a a really obstacle for me over the next few years, but I persevered. She had to stop everything. We couldn't talk about anything. We had to sit down and watch Dark Shadows. I'd never heard of it, but I had always been into spooky, scary things, you know, ghost stories. Even at that young age, I loved reading about ghosts and vampires and witches and werewolves. I loved all of that. All the old horror movies, you know, the universal horror movies. Mm -hmm. My mother also being a big fan. And I'm watching this show and there's this vampire named Tom Jennings. And I watched, you know, him, you know, attack, you know, Julia Hoffman, I later found out. And I thought, I gotta watch this show. It's a must. I have to watch this show. And I went home and told my mother and my mother said, absolutely no way, because I'm watching Secret Storm at the same time and we only have one TV. <laughs> well, that's not good. So I spent a certain amount of time over the summer visiting Julie and her baby around the time Dark Shadows aired and, you know, got caught up in the storyline. But then school happened. Couldn't watch. uh, But because the state of Arizona does not go on daylight savings time, uh, it switched every time there would be a time change from daylight to standard and back again. The entire daytime schedule would shift. And that year it shifted Dark Shadows away from Secret Storm. Mm-hmm. Now, my mother said, OK, you can start watching this show, you know, and I had a sh- uh, early schedule at high school that year, so I could be home by two o'clock. And so I started watching and, you know, the first few days it was pretty ordinary. And my mother, you know, who was perfectly fine with me watching horror movies and all that, did not want me watching soap operas because she felt they were too, you know, uh, they weren't appropriate for young children. Of course, given the town we're living in, she had no idea all the other things I knew about, but uh, that was a whole other matter. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, then something spooky happened. She says, oh, okay, you know, I kind of like this myself. So she became a big fan too. And so we would watch the show together. Mm-hmm. By the time spring came along and daylight savings time again, it was going to jump back to one o'clock, but I'd been given a three-inch reel-to-reel tape recorder for Christmas that year. And in the parts for the next few years, 
when Daylight Savings Time was on and I was still in school, she would record every episode for me. I would have to reuse the tapes constantly, but this way, at least I could hear the audio version and she would tell me any of the video, any of the visual things that happened that, you know, weren't uh, obvious on uh, just listening to the audio version. So, you know, thanks to my mother, I was able to keep up with Dark Shadows to the end of the series. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, that you were also a fan of, uh, of classic horror films. Um, how do you feel Dark Shadows fits into sort of that tapestry genre-wise of the sort of the gothic uh, horror, gothic romance sort of film genre. Um, like I always feel that Dark Shadows was a sort of a really important bridge going from the sort of the, the 60s monster craze going into the 70s, the next kind of wave of, of the monsters. Do you, do you feel that Dark Shadows had a sort of was a, an instrumental part of that tapestry? Oh, absolutely. It was a game changer. Uh, with a serial format, you had the chance to you know, really explore in depth all these classic horror themes, mm-hmm. but also it gave you a vast amount of time for characterization, for relationships. You had this combination of, you know, the uh, old horror movie tropes and the soap opera format, the serial format, you know, which uh, gave it, uh, gave Dark Shadows an opportunity to be extremely creative in how they approached all these old tropes mm-hmm. and, you know, introduce, you know, uh, for example, really complex characterizations for the characters that had only been seen as monsters before. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of, um, you know, most uh, like the Wolfman, for example, inadvertent monsters, as it were. But still, they had a chance with Dark Shadows to see the entire spectrum of a person's personality, human, monster, and combined. Excellent. Yeah, I, I 100% uh, agree with you. Uh, and I, I, I think it's, I mean, in terms of presenting characters, monstrous characters or, or characters who were very much other in gothic fiction, Dark Shadows was sort of, I think, the first program or, or anything uh, to present the monsters as sort of protagonists. Somebody like Barnabas was a very complex character with a lot of shades of gray, uh, and he eventually does become the protagonist of the series. And I don't, I can't think of any other instance prior to that where there was an ongoing story with that type of character leading the show, you know, or the story, you know? Oh, absolutely agreed. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they did was uh, really transform, you know, entire way of looking at horror characters. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I think without it, you know, I don't know uh, when that, when that might've changed. I'm sure it would have, you know, with, you know, Mm -hmm. advances in storytelling, but it just gave everything, you know, basically rocket fuel to actually look at these characters as actual full beings instead of just, you know, the evil villain who must be destroyed. Sure. And that ripple effect continues today uh, in, in media where uh, supernatural characters are presented as sort of the protagonists uh, of, a, of a series. So we can we continue to see that. And Dark Shadows, I think, was was really, uh, you know, it was the pivotal moment where that that actually started happening. Um, you were also into other pop culture things. Star Trek, you're also a big Star Trek fan, right? Oh, Star Trek, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm. X-Files, uh, Deep Space Nine. There's been tons and tons of shows that I've absolutely loved and get passionate about. You know, just uh, I've been to a lot of like uh, science fiction conventions, Comic-Con, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I go through these crazes every few years with a new show, you know, such as, for example, when Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on, I went to the Comic-Con that year, which had the whole cast there. Oh. You know, so, yeah, I, I've, I've basically have been a fangirl my entire life. I found 
fandom itself, proto-fandom, basically really early in the early 70s, there was this um, format then called a personal zine or per zine, which essentially was a blog. But, you know, in print, obviously, people would write down their thoughts on, you know, science fiction shows, comic books, you know, you name it, print it out on a few pages on a ditto machine and trade or send these to people for a self-addressed stamped envelope. Mm -hmm. So this whole fanish conversation I got into really, really early. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's that's been, you know, major part of my life. Most of the people I know personally are also fans because I made a lot of friends who fandom who have then become lifetime good friends. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about this because in the, when the show was actually on, when Dark Shadows was on, um, I find that the fandom sort of manifested in terms of actor fan clubs. Like you had the Marie Wallace fan club and you had the Dennis Patrick fan. I just had Rod Lavi on talking about the Dennis Patrick fan club. And you had these fan clubs that were sort of more focused on, on the actors and they send out newsletters where they talk about Dark Shadows. But then when Dark Shadows ended, you were right there when it came back in, in syndication in 75. Here's the world of Dark Shadows. You launched it. So how did this come about? How did the syndication era then lead to the first Dark Shadows fanzine? Well, it all happened because of Marvel Comics, actually. Oh, Wow. Uh, it was I was a major, major, major comic book fan. You know, I'd been you know very into them for years, and I also being vampires. Uh, Marvel in the mid seventies began uh, publishing not only some vampire comic books like uh, a Dracula title, yeah. but they also did uh, basically a version of Famous Monsters, uh, which they called Vampire Tales, and uh, they ran an article to, or two on Dark Shadows. And what they did in those days is they had the letter columns and would print the entire mailing address of anyone whose letter they published. And I wrote a letter, you know, saying, great that you're acknowledging Dark Shadows. This is wonderful. And, you know, I forget what else I said, but my address was in there. And I had then a number of people write to me. Some were, you know, just the sort of thing, letters that you just don't want to see. Uh, you know, basically, come on, letters from, you know, some oh, guy. <laughs> I also heard from a man named Richard who was in touch with what remained of Dark Shadows fandom at the time. And he gave me a couple of addresses on ongoing fan clubs that were still in existence. Mm -hmm. And also uh, the address of a woman named Jean Peacock who would, be, would become very, very crucial to the early stages of the Dark Shadows conventions. So I wrote to all these people and I got from Jean and from others, you know, information on the current clubs. There was one called The Best of Dark Shadows, which was also a fanzine like The World of Dark Shadows. And uh, there were uh, there was another one. Uh, I don't recall the name of the zine itself, but it was uh, published by a woman in Canada who actually is also, you know, uh, did something very crucial for the fandom in that she had uh, uh, legally she was legally blind. Mm -hmm. And she had professional recording equipment in which she yes. had recorded the last two, three years of Dark Shadows episodes every single day on this professional equipment. Was that jo Josette Kernigan, wasn't it? Yes, that was okay. her. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I got in touch with her. I got in touch with all these other people. I subscribed to all the existing uh, fan clubs and fanzines at the time. Another important person was a woman named Krista, who uh, when 
she decided she was running the Laura Parker fan club and she decided to close it down and the best of dark shadows closed. And basically within a year of me finding dark shadows fandom, it disappeared right out from under me. Wow. So I decided, well, I don't want this to stop. You know, I want this to continue going and I'm going to just have to do it myself. Mm -hmm. So I uh, contacted Krista and the other people involved in Dark Shadows Clubs said, listen, I would like to start a new fanzine, a fan club, I called it at the time, and I need to have you, you know, if you could give me your mailing address or send out mailings for me or whatever, and I forget the details, but basically all of them agreed. Uh, Josette's club uh, lasted a while longer, so she ran ads in every issue. And so I just sent out these flyers and I used uh, Krista's advice and I bought this incredibly difficult to operate. Uh, well, it wasn't that difficult, but the results were pretty poor. Hand-operated mimeograph machines so I could print these things myself yeah. because I was living in a very isolated rural area and there was no access any kind of professional printing on any scale that I could possibly have afforded. So, you know, and I wrote to a lot of people and I got some, you know, submissions and I, you know, typed out these mimeograph masters. Oh God, you know, just the way those things would, you know, this dust would come up from the mimeograph as you type them and it just kind of stick in your lungs. So I'm sure it was no good for anyone's health. All right. <laughs> but, you know, I did the first issue. I had about 30 subscribers and uh, I publicized it anywhere I could. And uh, Jean Peacock, you know, is also helpful because she had contacts in many fandoms. But basically, also another crucial thing that happened at the time was Jean was, uh, was the chair of a large science fiction convention called EchoCon uh, that was uh, initially started by B. Joe Tribble of Star Trek fame. And these were huge, huge events. There were several thousand people at them. And she was running, chairing one in 1975. And I had already been to uh, one or two small conventions before in Arizona, but this was a chance to go to a really major convention, uh, uh, San Diego uh, in the old El Cortez Hotel. And uh, I had to drive 400 miles across the desert by myself, the longest I'd ever driven by myself. I was 20 at the time. And I hit the big city of San Diego, you know, just, you know, when you go from a town with like a couple of uh, traffic lights to <laughs> a town that, of that size, it was just amazingly intimidating. But I found my way to the hotel and all these fans and all these fanish activities and these guest stars and all these classic movies like the uncut King Kong and, you know, the original uh, Frankenstein, you know, all these movies there to watch on a 24 hour basis. Yeah. But I had the time of my life. And I made contact with a lot of other friends there, including some Dark Shadows fans. And, you know, that also helped jumpstart, you know, my fan activity. I would continue going to EchoCon as long as it was being held. So um, at that point in time, then the fan scene started to take off a little bit at a time. And then quite a bit. We had the syndication at that time, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to get on um, Betamax tape the entire run of the 1795 uh, flashback. And having access to those tapes, you know, was a real boon, you know, for, you know, not only for me as a fan, but also for the way I could add information to the world of Dark Shadows and eventually all the other fan publications I did mm -hmm. up until more widespread syndication, which case having access to three years worth was just an incredible boon. And let's see. Just real quick. Um, 
I get, so I was incorrect in saying that the world of dark shadows was, I always assumed it was the first dark shadows fanzine, but you're saying there were actually some others prior to the world of dark shadows. I would call the best of dark shadows, the first true dark shadows fanzine out okay. there. Okay. Uh, okay. She uh, stopped publishing, I think in 1976 mm-hmm. and Josette Kernahan's publication, you know, had also been uh, uh, definitely an inspiration for me okay. and that ran for quite a number of issues, you know, I, okay. I don't remember how many, but it's at least 30. Okay. Good. Good to know. Um, so now how did this then uh, segue into the growth of the world of dark shadows and then shadow con, how did that happen as well? Okay, well, now we're going to go back to Jean Peacock. Mm-hmm. Uh, she only ran, she was the only chair of the San Diego Equicon event. It went back to Los Angeles the following year. And uh, I will tell a little bit more about the Los Angeles convention because that also helped. That was right. Los Angeles had been showing dark shadows and syndication and it recently just stopped. Mm-hmm. Equicon was held a short time after they aired the last episode they had available. And when I was there, I thought, well, you know, let's get see if there's anybody interested in Dark Shadows here. So they had uh, fan conventions at the time would put up these big bulletin boards and you could just stick notices on them about I'd like to meet other fans or I'm having a party in my room or et cetera, et cetera. So I went, you know, and uh, posted notice saying Dark Shadows fans, how about we meet at this certain place in the hotel on Sunday morning? And I had no idea when who how many would show up, but a lot of people showed up. And we had a great, you know, basically a, a full morning long impromptu panel discussion all about Dark Shadows, you know, at that one corner of the uh, Marriott Hotel in Los Angeles. What year was uh, this? Uh, 76. 76, okay. And that uh, was where I met Marcy Robin. She came mm-hmm. there and several other people uh, who got very involved from that point on. And, uh, you know, we traded addresses, you know, and, uh, you know, the pen pal thing was just enormous at the time, you know, I was writing to so many people, I can't even calculate how many, but that was how fans stayed in touch. There's a certain amount of phone conversations too, but uh, that, back then phone calls were tremendously expensive, uh, long distance calls. So, you know, it was done pen pals through the mail. So uh, ShadowCon, uh, Jean Graham, uh, the following year, began working with a group in San Diego fan group called StarCon. And they were putting on what was essentially an umbrella convention for various interests. And that ranged for everything from uh, the science fiction book and movie Logan's Run, which was very popular at the time, and uh, gaming, you know, early versions of Dungeons and Dragons and other popular shows, Star Trek, of course, other science fiction shows, I think uh, Space of 1999, I'm not sure if it was out then or not, but things like that. And Dark Shadows was a natural fit. And so talking with Jean, we agreed that, you know, uh, she would, uh, as she was chair, she would set aside a meeting space for Dark Shadows and also rent a film projector for us. So I posted information about that in the world of Dark Shadows. And of course, they publicized this through uh, their convention uh, mailing list as well. And, you know, that's how ShadowCon 1 came about. You know, I started advertising it. Uh, we were able to get John Carlin for our first guest. Uh, we had, you know, the weekend there, though, Saturday was the primary day. And we had um, a couple of kinescopes to show on the film projector, a couple of Dark Shadows episodes that were not part of the syndication package, but from 1897. And so we were able to show something that hadn't been seen since 1969. Yeah. And, you know, the energy was just tremendous. We didn't have... A huge, well, the room was full, but we had, I'd say, about 
40, 50 people, something like that. And that became the basis for, you know, uh, ShadowCon 2, 3, et cetera, and eventually the Dark Shadows Festival, because, again, every every bit of publicity I could find, every teen magazine, every soap opera magazine, every monster magazine that I could find that would put in a reference to ShadowCon, to the world of Dark Shadows, I did. And, you know, more and more people, you know, just began subscribing and coming to the conventions. Now, did Shadowgram also grow? grow you mentioned Marcy Robin, of course, was also a huge uh, figure in the Dark Shadows fandom as well. Um, yeah. Were you, you involved with Shadowgram as well? Was it a team effort between you and Marcy or was that Marcy's idea? Or It was actually started by Maria Barbosa. Okay. And Marcy, Marcy was her co-editor. I did not, I had been running a column in World of Dark Shadows called Current Events mm-hmm. to describe what, you know, the Dark Shadows actors were doing, but it quickly became apparent there was a lot to follow here. You know, a lot of actors, a lot of tech people, a lot to follow, and it needed a publication of its own. And Maria and Marcy then, you know, began Shadowgram. And I can't quite remember the exact date. I think um, Maria was in Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. 78. Yeah. And Maria, I can't remember. She didn't stay with it uh, for more than, I think, a couple of years. And then Marcy took over completely. And, um, you know, like, again, I can't remember the exact dates, but, uh, you know, that also kept going. And uh, at some point in time, uh, it stopped being typewritten on the com- and put on the computer. I had um, I worked in Silicon Valley in the 80s mm-hmm. and I had a PC before almost anyone. And uh, so I was able to put the mailing lists on that PC uh, to do all the uh, layout, you know, such it was in that, you know, relatively primitive era and so forth. And, you know, I was doing that uh, by the mid 80s. And then later on, I got uh, access to much better technology, desktop publishing programs. And I want to bring that up again later in regards to Pomegranate Press, because I worked for them uh, for a while there as well. But desktop publishing programs, laser printers, uh, uh, then scanning later on. But, uh, you know, all this, I worked with Marcy on basically doing the layout uh, and uh, just the nuts and bolts of, you know, the production. But she did all the editing, all the work, all the contact with people. Mm -hmm. And I just handled the tech part. Um, For those who may not know, uh, Shadowgram was a newsletter that offered uh, information on a regular basis about the goings on of the uh, Dark Shadows cast and crew. Uh, And there was even a fan section as well with like goings on with with the fans as well. And the world of Dark Shadows, of course, was a really slick fanzine that had lots of fanfic and my favorite, the Consport Debating Society with the speculation uh, about the plot and the characters, like those essays. I always loved that kind of stuff. Uh, Fan art to all kinds of just incredible, incredible stuff. In addition to, you know, you know, pictures, interviews, lots, lots of good things. But you mentioned, you know, the desktop publishing and it, uh, the World of Dark Shadows, you know, everyone sees it as sort of the flagship zine. There were a lot of Dark Shadows fanzines that came in the wake of the uh, World of Dark Shadows that were also amazing. Uh, Inside the Old House also comes to mind as a, as a really slick uh, fanzine, but uh, your fanzine always looked really good. Like it just looked, it was a fanzine, but it looked really professionally done. You know, it looked classy. And I loved all of those fanzines. I was subscribing to to all of them. How long did it take you to, to put together like a typical issue of the World of Dark Shadows was it uh you know like it seemed like it was just a lot of 
time and, and effort that went into putting that together? Oh, it was a great deal of time and effort, uh, particularly early on when everything had to be done through the mail. Mm-hmm. I, you know, basically did some work on it almost every day, you know, whether it was just uh, correspondence with people who were contributing or just the actual typing, uh, typing the masters uh, for the print shop. You know, I uh, did mimeograph for the first eight issues and then via uh, Shadikon. I met uh, someone who actually owned a print shop. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they uh, basically did, uh, sent me uh, formats for the layout for offset printing. And I would do that. And then I would uh, send them to the print shop and then they would uh, to handle the printing and then send the z- finished scenes to me. We were living in different cities. And then later on, you know, I was living in San Jose and I found an excellent print shop up in Oakland. And, you know, I uh, pretty much stuck with that place for the entire rest of the time. I almost all the rest of the time I did the fanzine. And, you know, at one point they uh, in the late 90s, they went out of business. So the last few issues were done at a shop down here in Los Angeles. It was a tremendous amount of time and work. But, you know, I just I kind of spaced it out. I wasn't attempting to follow a regular printing schedule because you know that sort of deadline would have been impossible anyway so it was basically i would just work on it work on it when i had enough uh ready to go i would do another issue yeah and i remember you eventually got to doing these sort of uh double issue digest style uh releases that were looked i mean like the size of like if you think of like a reader's digest that was always kind of what i thought of when it was just had a very blocky little uh, kind of uh, rectangular shape to it and it had a spine and it looked really looked those looked really slick. I remember you started kind of doubling up on those, which was uh, kind of a cool idea, I thought. Yeah, that really helped me include more material. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it cut down some of the work because instead of doing, you know, mailings, because mailings were a lot of work Mm -hmm. uh, for two separate issues, I could do it for one. Mm -hmm. Uh, That uh, type of binding was at that time called perfect binding, you know, was, you know, basically paperback book binding. And uh, it was because that shop in Oakland actually, you know, did a lot of work for the University of California at Berkeley, including publications, Uh small press publications for various departments there. And, you know, so they had the binding technology that a lot of print shops of that era did not have. So, you know, it was just a, a real benefit to me to be able to have my work done there. And also, to be able to keep it at a reasonable price because other places charged a lot extra just for binding, regular binding, not even this, you know, really high quality, perfect binding. And because they were set up for it and because they already owned all the equipment for it, they were able to give me a very reasonable price. That's great. Uh, yeah. And I remember the concordances, the Dark Shadows concordances, which, of course, were really detailed and beautifully illustrated uh, summaries of, of episodes, uh, many of which at the time had not even been aired in syndication yet. And those looked sensational, too, because you had the binding going. I know you uh, initially did like the 1795 concordance, the 1897 concordance, and then you went back and start and kind of redid them and filled them out even more. And then you did a, the 1840 concordance. Um, and a lot of those had that that perfect binding that you're you're describing. Um, how did the concordances come about? Was it because you had those Betamax 1795 episodes? Did that give you the idea to kind of do this at that time? Yes, it was. You know, there was a tremendous amount of curiosity among fans then as to a lot of whom had gotten a fandom right in the middle like I had and had never seen the original episodes. 
And I wanted, for my own sake, to learn about what happened before. And the syndication certainly helped that. But I also thought, well, you know, this would be a great way to, you know, give people a guide to the episodes, even if at that time, you know, it was inconceivable we were ever going to see the whole thing. You know, we could <laughs> hope for it, but it wasn't likely at that time. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Betamax tapes, uh, you know, I was able to do the, the concordance from that. 1897 was an entirely another story. I was using Josette Kernahan's audio tapes. I had very little reference to video material, wow. and I had to basically take guesses as what was happening. And I'd run this past people uh, who, uh, you know, had a better memory than I did, because again, since I grew up mostly listening to the episodes, except for summertime and the uh, winter months, but there's a lot of things I never actually saw the first time around. And so, you know, the reason to redo 1897, I still regret never being able to finish uh, the second volume. I know. I was going to ask you, when is that second volume coming out? <laughs> never. It's, been, uh, it's uh, been summarized very well online, you know, yeah. and, without, and without Warren. I mean, he was such a great collaborator. I know. Oh. Warren, you know, just he died so young. You know, so tragic. Warren Odson. Warren Odson was just a brilliant illustrator. I mean, his work is just mind blowing. And I show I sent you the message on Facebook. I won an auction for an original printing of the first version of the 1897 Concordance you did. And it turned out it was Warren's copy of that from an from an estate sale. And it had his actual you know, plans for what he was going to do in your redo of the 1897 Concordance for volume one. And it's all his list of ideas there. And then for the volume two, he was planning those out as well and outlining what he was going to do. And then there were some sketches as well. I mean, just amazing artist. And it's such a tragedy that he that he passed uh, away at such a young age. Yeah, you found a real find there. I'm so pleased it went to someone who recognized what this was and could appreciate what it was because so many fanished things could just get tossed in a dumpster when people pass away. Yeah. You know, with, with his case, the people who knew him were also fanished. So, you know, mm. they recognize that this is not something you just throw away, but uh, you know, I'm really delighted it got into your hands. That's just wonderful news. I was so pleased to hear that. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm honored uh, to have that. How did you get to know him? Was it, was it through the convention scene as well, or did he just subscribe to the world of dark shadows and that's how you got to know him? It was through uh, the world of dark shadows. You know, I mm-hmm. never met him in person. I talked to him on the phone any number of times, but never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived in Canada uh, he, uh, he just contacted me and sent me a few sketches and I went, wow, you know, just, yeah. wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can find people who are really good at portraiture or action scenes or who can, you know, take a photograph and do, you know, a good, uh, likeness, but someone who can draw the characters that specifically and that accurately in scenes they've never actually appeared in on the television. Mm-hmm. You know, he had uh, access to a lot of photographs taken de- directly from television screens, but, you know, a lot of those were not the best quality. You know, taking TV photos was quite an art form. I sucked at it. I tried. It was terrible. I tried but, too. I was never yeah. good at it. <laughs> but some people were good, and I provided him with loads of those pictures. But there was still, you know, he took those and created something new from them. And that's a real rare talent he had. Really? He, yeah. And he was also an excellent writer too. I remember I loved his essays that he would write. He'd speculate on, you know, different plot aspects. And that's 
part of what I like bringing into to this podcast as well as diving into sort of speculating about the characters and the plots because Dark Shadows often would uh, not address certain things or leave certain things unanswered. And it's for me, that's always fun to try to it's like a, a puzzle, like how do you figure out what how this happened or how this took place. Uh, and Warren was all, always really good at writing those those essays about that kind of stuff. His essays are great. I've always loved Fanish Meta for a lot of different things. You know, all the speculation, mm-hmm. the filling in the gaps, what they call, you know, are you familiar with the term spackling? Spackling? No, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it's a way of, you know, well, this is inconsistent with that in the canon, but this is a possible explanation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if it's much in use anymore, but that was a term I heard a lot. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I love, yeah, that's, that's, I love doing that stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun, you know, to, for me, I love that. Um, yeah. Great. Now, so you were also publishing also fanfic as, as well. I remember doing like novels, like the beginnings, the Island of ghosts. That's one that comes to mind. You were doing all of this through pentagram publications, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a name I came up uh, with uh, umbrella name for all my publications because, mm-hmm. and because of the use of the pentagram and dark shadows, you know, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, a lot of other fan publishers, they pick something from whatever canon they're into to name their zine or their club or whatever. And I thought, well, let's do this for Dark Shadows too. Let's follow all these other fanish traditions and get Dark Shadows in, you know, aligned with all these other traditions. Sure, sure. So so were you involved with other fan, like you were subscribing to other zines like from Star Trek or, or any of that stuff or? Star Trek Man from Uncle. That was another, you know, one mm-hmm. of my Spanish. That was my first love show, actually. You know, oh, yeah. loved it. So yeah, I was getting publications. Also, Star Wars. Um, there was a, you know, a, several uh, kind of general fanzine publications that were multi-fandom. Uh, mm-hmm. So there was, you know, literally something for everyone. Uh, uh, if you know, they would, they would have a lot of obscure fandoms in there. Like I remember reading stories based on The Prisoner, for example. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I was reading a lot of other fandoms and I was learning from all the editors of these fandoms. I was learning publishing techniques. Uh, I was learning a lot. And I also learned a lot professionally, you know, for desktop publishing when I worked for Pomegranate uh, Publications for yeah. Captain Lee Scott, uh, because I did the layout on some of the books she published. Wow. That's now you got to know her. I assume this was through the, the conventions, right? Yes. And also through a friend, of, a friend of hers, also an artist, Janet Meehan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. She, yeah, she knew Catherine. And uh, sometime in the mid 80s, Catherine began talking about a book about her memories of Dark Shadows and her memorabilia and so forth. And one of the things she wanted to do and needed someone's uh, assistance in was writing a complete plot summary for the entire series, episode by episode. Yes. Yeah. So she contacted me and, you know, so I basically did the entire thing from episode one through uh, the episode 200, 1225. Wow. Yes. That summary was like, I, it was like a manna from heaven for me because I was, it was, the show was airing on uh, channel 58 out of Vineyard Haven here in Massachusetts. And it was uh, in the midst of 1897 in the Count Potofi era. He was actually, he was still Victor Fenn Gibbon at that time. And I remember, yeah. yeah, And I remember picking up, I found the, uh, my scrapbook memories of dark shadows on the shelf. It blew my mind that that was even existed, you know? Uh, And I read that summary and I I learned what happened after that, because 
it kept going. It did keep going on Channel 58 up until parallel time. It ran until the end of the syndication package, somewhere in parallel time, and then ended. So I didn't know what was going to happen later. So that summary got me through until I got the 1840 Concordance, and and I was able to read about the the end of the series and and what happened there in in detail through that. So, oh, that's great that you were the one who uh, wrote that. And you did the layout for my scrapbook memories as well? No, I wasn't actually working for it at the time. I was still okay. living in Northern California. Uh, Janet, um, you know, she had, uh, she really encouraged Catherine because Catherine had been talking to her about, well, you know, do you think this is practical? Will anyone buy it? Uh, so we all encouraged her, yes, you know, people are going to want to buy this. There's literally nothing out there. And this this will sell, you know, because particularly since Dark Shadows was in pretty good syndication at the time, various parts of the country, there was still enough interest around, I think, she realized to justify actually writing and publishing this book. Mm-hmm. Now, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, the company I was working for, uh, Silicon Valley was going through a real downturn at the time a real consolidation. And uh, the company I was working for was, you know, right on the edge. In fact, they went out of business about six months after I moved, but the writing was on the wall and the opportunity to actually work for Catherine and do some freelance work, you know, really appealed. So, you know, that's when I moved to LA. Wow. And uh, what I, um, I did lay out on books she published, like there was one on, um, called word of word of mouth about you know voice actors who do commercials and animation that I did the uh, did the layout for that mm-hmm. I did research for some books she did on um, lobby cards oh I remember that book yeah mm-hmm. I, that was that was so fun I got to go to the Hollywood <laughs> library uh, and you know uh, read all these books that are never taken out of that library and do all this research on these classic movies from the 1910s 20s the silent era basically it was oh cool so much fun and uh, yeah, a number of other things for her. And, uh, you know, for, I mostly worked with her um, husband at the time, Ben Martin. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, desktop publishing uh, was just coming into being at that time. And there was a program for PC called Ventura Publisher. And Ben hired a consultant to teach us how to use this program, which was considered incredibly complicated at the time, but would just seem very primitive now. But it was, you know, just really unheard of, you know, to, you know, be able to have, you know, uh, the sc- everything you were doing on the screen exactly the way it was going to look on paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other computer I was using at the time, my own personal computer, you know, just had white lettering on a green screen, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. So, you know, this marvelous technology, you know, we laid out, you know, several books on uh, several of the early pomegranate bu- books on there. It was some guide to Hollywood film locations, that sort of thing. And I learned a tremendous amount, and so did he. And he was just a sheer joy to work with. Wonderful guy. Wow. And, and you were, and you were doing this and the world of Dark Shadows at the same time. Yes, because wow. I was actually working for them uh, a couple of days a week. I was also working for a film director a couple of days a week. Wow. Uh, basically, uh, I was. She was uh, writing scripts, and there was uh, a specific computer program for script formatting. You know, and I was uh, putting the scripts in format for her. And, you know, I was doing some freelance work uh, because I was so early in the computer era. I did some freelance work at the time because people were buying PCs with no idea what they were doing. And so I made a a small business about training people how to use their own computers and writing personalized manuals for them. So those those were my day jobs during that time. Wow. Now, I want to jump back a little bit because you talked a little bit about ShadowCon. Now, how did 
you are one of the founders of the Dark Shadows Festival. Like you are instrumental in creating the Dark Shadows Festival. Like how did how did this come about the festivals, the, the iconic and legendary Dark Shadows festivals? Well, I was uh, involved with Shadowcom for a few years, but um, um, after the first three, you know, I was in a complicated job situation where it was really impossible to get a lot of time off to make personal calls and to do the sort of event like a convention, you need to have more flexibility. Okay, so uh, other people involved took over, but their fanish interests change. <laughs> And they started expanding it to more a general horror convention. And then they wanted to bring in the show V, which was about the lizard aliens. Mm -hmm. And they were getting some interesting horror writers like Robert Block. But Dark Shadows became less and less apart until it was really marginalized toward the end. And I remember it was on a driving trip. Um, Maria Barbosa, Marcy Robin, and myself were traveling somewhere. And we started talking about, we want a Dark Shadows convention again. We want a full Dark Shadows convention, nothing else, pure Dark Shadows. And, you know, we brainstormed for a while and came up with the title of the Dark Shadows Festival. And at the same time, Dale Clark in Texas was thinking about doing his own Dark Shadows convention, mm -hmm. which he did. Uh, he did uh, two conventions, uh, I think a year or so apart, called the Dallas Dark Shadows Convention, Jonathan Frid guested at, at least one, maybe both, you know, and he had some other guests too. And, oh, he had this wonderful uh, hotel for them. It was this kind of like old English style and it had long corridors with wood paneling. It looked like Collinwood. Oh, cool. <laughs> Absolutely perfect place for an event. So anyway, Marcy Marie and myself, you know, began working on logistics. And when we were in Dallas, visiting Dale uh, one time, uh, Maria met a woman named Ann Wilson, who lived in New Jersey. Uh, and we were talking about both doing a West Coast event and an East Coast event. And, you know, the list logistics of trying to do something 3000 miles away, particularly then is really difficult. And Ann in New Jersey, you know, became, you know, our contact there, was able to go into person to hotels. You know, a lot of this was done, of course, by phone. Uh, Maria was uh, the chair, and uh, we wound up doing uh, an event in San Jose, an event in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, within a few months of each other. The San Jose one was first, and um, it was that one was just small. We weren't trying for anything, but it's rather a large fan party at a hotel room. So was and, this was 80, 82 or 83? Um Around that time, okay. I, I would need to look up the exact dates, but yeah, it was fairly early on. Okay. So we had our San Jose event, and we, then we had our New, New Jersey event, the Gateway Hilton. And this was around the time that uh, the syndication was also being done on PBS stations. Yes. And they were doing fundraising drives, and they were giving away, you know, obviously prizes like they did, and maybe still do, I'm not sure. And one of the prizes they gave away was subscriptions to Shattergram. And so this then publicized Shattergram, and all these new subscriptions coming in publicized the festival. And so you know, we went from uh, the Newark, New Jersey convention, went from 100 people the first year, 300 the second, 800 the third. Oh. And it just kept growing. And the subscription base for both the World of Dark Shadows and Shadowgram just kept growing. It just took off like a rocket in the mid-80s. Was that the height of the subscriptions for the World of Dark Shadows at that time? 90s, 1990s. You know, 90s. 
Yeah. I'd say mid nineties was, you know, the absolute height. Okay. And so, you know, then we kept on being able to get more and more guests. Uh, at the third year, you know, Maria decided, you know, to step down. And uh, then Jim Pearson was, you know, the obvious perfect person for it. Uh, he had been a fan. He had been to, I think, some of the Shadowcons. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was studying broadcast, you know, um, television, you know, uh, broadcasting at the time in college. Mm -hmm. And he was just the perfect person for this. And he certainly turned to the even more perfect person when he paid, when he was hired by Dan Curtis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the fan dream almost. He actually got hired by Dan Curtis to now I, he's like the go-to person as, as I understand it for any kind of licensing or anything like that with regard to Dark Shadows, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we went from being a fan and then uh, becoming a chair of the festival to working for Dan Curtis and look at everything that followed, you know, just mm -hmm. the syndication. Then uh, the syndication was already in place, but we're talking about the videotapes and then the DVDs and now the streaming, you know, just yeah. everything that happened, you know, all came together that year that Jim turned, uh, took over the festival chair. Of course, Marcy and I stayed on the staff the entire time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been a great and fun and incredibly intense experience. Yeah. What was Now, what was your role? Uh, I know Marcy was, I think, the guest manager for the con, yeah. wasn't she? And what was your what was your role on it? I did a lot of background stuff. You know, I did the layout for the program books, gotcha. mm -hmm. uh, anything, uh, a, a lot of pre-convention work I did. The main thing I did at the uh, convention itself was uh, the dealer's room coordination and basically anything that needed to be done, there wasn't some, someone else there to do it at the time. But we got a really, really excellent volunteer staff. You know, in fact, many of the people volunteered stay, uh, you know, uh, were there in the same positions for mm -hmm. well over two decades. Great friends, great, you know, they would absolutely be there and do what needed to be done. You know, it was like a family almost because, you know, we became such good friends over those years. I only got to go to two Dark Shadows festivals. I wish I had gone to all of them. I wish I had been, had the wherewithal and the ability to do it. But I did get to go twice and I loved both times that I did get to go. Um, and I, I hope it comes back. And that's something that I always hear people asking. And I know the the actors are, you know, it's difficult for them, to, for some of them to to travel now and stuff, but some are still willing to do it. Uh, but, you know, I think a West Coast con could be easily accessible for, for some of them. Do you think there's any hope that the Dark Shadows Festival or some uh, you know, like like uh, the phoenix rising from the ashes. Is there any hope for a future Dark Shadows convention of that sort? It would be wonderful, and I hope it would. We actually had had a smaller event planned for the year that COVID struck, which, of course, you know, didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, I see, you know, in today's news that there's another variant on the horizon. You know, it's so yeah. hard to plan anything these days. It is. You know, yeah. Any... You know, any events, you know, when you have to plan so far in advance, you know, just everything is so uncertain. So right now, you know, I would love to see it happen again. And everything's so uncertain, I can't even predict. Sure. Yeah. Because I've seen people say, oh, the 50th anniversary was the last one. But I, I think, you know, I, I think it would still be an, an incredible thing to do, even if it's not every year. Once, once you know, obviously once things get better with, with the pandemic situation and stuff, fingers crossed, you know, like that 
things will continue to improve as we as we go forward uh, and more people get vaccinated. And I hope hope so. But it would be incredible to have a new event of, of that magnitude uh, happen because it, I see people asking about it online a lot. And I've gotten messages from people asking you know, if you heard anything about us. I, I haven't haven't, but I hope something happens. Well, if anything does, we'll be uh, the first to announce it in Shadowgram. Oh, awesome. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wonderful. Hey, I will volunteer. I will be first in line to volunteer for this one because I missed too many of them and I want to I want to help out with this one. Um, awesome. <laughs> now, as the as things went on and and you know, uh, when the 91 series came out, that was a big deal. Everybody was super excited that there was a new Dark Shadows coming and that Dan Curtis was the one doing it. And it was uh, a big deal. And and you and Marcy uh, co-wrote a book at around that time, uh, as I recall, called Dark Shadows in the Afternoon. Uh, so talk, talk, can you talk about that a little bit? What was Dark Shadows in the Afternoon all about? Well, yeah, that's actually one of two books we co-wrote. Actually, we had a third writer on the other one, The Dark Shadows Companion. Oh, yes. Um, yep. For Dark Shadows in the Afternoon, uh, Ed Gross, uh, who does those files magazines, had actually oh, yeah. contacted me mm-hmm. and asked uh, if, you know, I would be interested in writing something. And I said that both, Mar- both Marcy and myself would be. We've got different perspectives on, you know, our involvement in fandom. And, you know, so basically with Ed, we just worked out the format, you know, and decided what he wanted, you know, he gave me some ideas on what he wanted to see. And, you know, we gave him feedback and uh, then, you know, that was a fun experience. I enjoyed that, you know, it's uh uh, and of course, Warren Odson did the cover for that as well. Yes. Yeah. With uh, Ben Cross and Jonathan Frit. Uh, speaking of Ed Gross, he does a new podcast called Vampires and Slayers, uh, which uh, covers a variety of, of vampire related topics, including Dark Shadows. He had like a two part episode with Mark B. Perry, who's trying to do the uh, launch the Dark Shadows reincarnation series, the sequel series. Uh, so yeah, definitely check that out, Vampires and Slayers. Uh, and Ed actually reached out to me recently about uh, doing coming on this podcast. So I will at some point I want to have Ed on uh, for a visit. Um, you mentioned the Dark, Dark Shadows Companion as well. That was a pomegranate press uh, book uh, that Catherine Lee Scott put out, and it's a great book. So you and Marcy were involved in that as well. You wrote for that too, you mentioned. Well, we wrote the basic book, uh, Marcy, mm-hmm. Melody Clark, and myself. We actually wrote the book with uh, no particular publisher in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, basically used, I had an enormous quantity, uh, Marcy and I both had an enormous quantity of clippings and magazine articles and other information on Dark Shadows. And I forget how we came up with the idea, but one day we said, we've got all this background here, why not write a book? And uh, so, you know, we worked out the format, you know, just the chapter titles. I think one of my favorite titles was, uh, I think Melody came up with this one, The Incredible Shrinking Werewolf, which Alex <laughs> Stevens, the difference between Alex Stevens' height and David Selby. Yes. It's pretty dramatic. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we uh, wrote this entire uh, uh, manuscript and we submitted to several publishers, you know, and then, you know, Catherine expressed interest and then, uh, she was then got uh, other people to write forwards to it. But uh, basically, the actual book itself we wrote, and then it has a number of forwards and additional material as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, and that leads to one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had related to Dark Shadows, or I should say, odd experience. I was on to tell the truth 
have. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> with Marcy was, you know, her uh, work schedule wouldn't permit, and Melody didn't live in the LA close enough to actually make it practical to go down to the studio, whereas I was working freelance and could work out my schedule. And uh, so the whole concept there, who is the author of the Dark Shadows Companion? And, you know, so they had to guess it was, who, you know, basically, uh, which one of the three of us was the actual author? I didn't think it was fair because it turned out one of the people on the panel knew Louis Edmonds. Oh. And I question that you know none of the other two could possibly have answered and so then it was obvious it was me so you know I didn't uh, didn't get the full full prize that I really had hoped to get but uh, uh. <laughs> that was that was a really interesting experience you know um, really fun I hadn't expected I, I thought I was going to be really nervous and I know I was and I probably looked it but I also enjoyed that is that and on YouTube anywhere uh, I know it was, I don't believe so. I know it was rerun on the game channel at one time, but I, God knows if it's ever been seen since then. I keep on looking for it, but, you know, I've yet to run across it. So, you know, if it ever shows up, you know, uh, I'll post a link. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Do you have any, like, uh, are there any like memories uh, of the festivals, anything that jumps out at you as something that was particularly poignant or something that, um, you know, that you hold dear, that was really a, a fond memory that you have of, of the Dark Shadows festivals? It's mostly vignettes, you know, just conversations with people, you know, just, you know, the sort of conversations we're having, how did you get into it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just the whole experience, you know, just I remember some of the banquets, you know, just really being awestruck, really, you know, think that <laughs> Back in 1977, when Gene and I said, you know, let's put on a show, we had like 40 people show up that had grown to this immense hotel ballroom, you know, with all these tables completely packed. And that even wasn't every attendee of the uh, convention. Hmm. And it grew from this tiny seed to this enormous thing, you know, just I remember at one of these banquets uh, when we had so many of the cast members and I'd had a chance to meet all these people over the years. And I realized, you know, just just how amazing the whole trip was. And, you know, yeah, there's there's lots of individual memories, but that whole experience of, you know, having met virtually every member of the cast and crew over the years and, you know, just having a chance to at least, you know, talk briefly to all of them was just, a, you know, a dream that I would never have imagined, you know, when I first got into this. Sure. Yeah. Oh man. It's, I, I mean, there, this grew and I mean, there were thousands of people going at, at one point to these shows. Um, though I, I tried to go to the 2016 one, like it was sold out by the time I, it was the SAZY method, you know, self-addressed okay. Sam envelope. And it was, I got a letter back. Was it Ann? What well, might've been Ann Wilson? Something yeah, like would have been Ann Wilson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That it was sold out. I said, oh man, I would, I would have, I would have liked that, that 2016 one. I should, I should, I should have found some other way to just wait outside, like waiting, you know, like with the, with sad eyes, you know, at the windows. <laughs> Like at the Broadway theaters, are there any tickets that people didn't show up? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, uh, I had to coordinate one of those East Coast events that was very limited membership, and I had this waiting list a mile long hmm. of people wanting to get in. But of course, it's all computerized now. So as soon as one person canceled, I'd contact the next person on the waiting list. Sure. I spent like every evening, you know, for a while, just 
dealing with the membership for that event. I remember Bob, it reminds me of what you, what you just said, reminds me of what Bob Issel said when I, I was up, just up at Seaview uh, Terrace in October. And he said initially, you know, he could only invite a very limited number of people right. to the to the house. And he said he was like deciding who 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 gets off the Titanic and who doesn't, you know, yes. it's, like, it's like, you know, so, uh, but they opened it up a little bit more. So a few, you know, a few more people could go now, but um, That's great. That's yeah, good. Good experience to be there. Definitely. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about some, some fun fanish, uh, stuff here too. Um, I'd love to hear what your, uh, favorite storyline is and what your favorite character is from the show. If you can pick a character or characters, let's say. Well, originally it was 1897. I loved 1897. Mm-hmm. Everything about it was so bravura, so wonderful. The char- characters were so colorful and distinct and so well written there was such witty dialogue you know like magda you know just quentin you know just uh you know just all these characters you know had just the best dialogue during that time they were just really firing on all cylinders basically uh favorite characters barnabas always angelique uh 1897 quentin magda i love magda chris jennings you know um I loved his storyline. Um, 1795 um, is probably edged out 1897 is my favorite favorite, but you know, I got to give kudos to how I came in. And that was, uh, like I said, about, uh, I started watching regularly October 68 with the Quentin's ghost storyline. Mm-hmm. So that whole eerie turn of the screw storyline really struck me, yeah. loved it. And um, then, then when I finally saw 1795, which was in uh, the late 70s, uh, when uh, San Francisco, you know, aired it, uh, then yeah, yeah, this this is the absolute underpinnings of the entire show. You know, just yeah. you know, finding out how Barnes became a vampire, all this backstory, all these colorful characters. You know, just you know, this this is pure dark shadows. So between the two of those, they are just. Maybe 51% for 1795 and 49% for 1897, really tied. Excellent choices. Excellent. Um, Another question I have that I often ask guests is, is there any other uh, classic horror tale, like a gothic tale that you would have enjoyed seeing incorporated into the mythology of Dark Shadows? Dark Shadows was known for repurposing these stories and incorporating them into, into the Dark Shadows canon is there anything you would have enjoyed seeing of that nature you know i'm trying to think of something because you know the classic horror tropes they pretty much covered most of them but i think there are other legends or stories that certainly could have been adapted you know uh i can't think of any specifics i know personally i would have liked to have seen a bit more of the uh, Phoenix storyline with more background from Egyptology there, uh, you know, a new version of DS could certainly do something like that. You know, it's not, wouldn't be uh, confined to, you know, a small soundstage, but, you know, most of the storylines I can think of have really, they, they tackled them. Have you thought of anything that would be interesting? Um, one that, that jumps out at me was um, lot number 249 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which was a mummy story. Uh, and I, believe Dan Curtis was kind of reluctant to do to do a mummy storyline. That would have been hard with the constraints of the time. But that 
that's when I was talking about Egyptology, that's part of what I had in mind was a mummy story, but you know, going, you know, logistics. I mean, they couldn't show the Lovecraft monster. So it'd been really hard to show the mummy. Do you, have you ever heard anything about what the Lovecraft monster would have looked like the Leviathan creature? Not really. I've heard speculation, but none of the speculation seems to match. So I don't think there was any agreed upon, you know, uh, concept other than, you know, what we do get from Lovecraft, you know, the basic of the Cthulhu uh, mythos, if that's how that's pronounced. I've seen different fan illustrations, you know, and interpretations of it. I wondered if there were, if the writers ever said anything about what they, what they had in mind for that. Um, and there were, there were, I've had uh, other folks on here who've expressed, you know, ideas about stories that could be used. For example, uh, Dominique Lamsey's mentioned the haunting of Hill House. Um, oh, I know. just, re- I just listened to the audio version of that. I hadn't read it for years. Yeah. I thought I'm going to listen to the audio version. Yeah. 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 The whole presence of the house itself, that would have been brilliant, you know, just, well, you know, Cullenwood was always supposed to be haunted, but sure. not by, you know, imbued by its own personality, as it were. And that that would have been great. Sure. The idea that the house has become this sort of sentient, sort of malignant force unto itself, maybe with well, some elements of the fall of the House of Usher thrown in, in there, too, you know. Well, it only makes sense. I mean, this is like uh, Sunnyville and Buffy, you know, where there's a helm yeah. up there. It's just this... Mm-hmm focal point of all this occult energy and only makes sense that the actual surroundings the house the grounds you know the cliff everything would be imbued by all this intense supernatural focus there yeah you know i always wished that buffy would have referenced collinsport as a hellmouth it would have been just a great reference to just throw that out you know oh there are other hellmouths up in maine there's collinsport you know some, something that uh nods to that that would have been brilliant. That would have been brilliant. Did you see that supernatural episode where the vampires <laughs> watching dark shadows? Yes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was, God. that was great. Yeah. I always love it when they, I, I just did a, not a rant, I guess, but a, a lecture, I guess, about how dark shadows should be referenced more in popular culture. It is, you know, you do see things like that with supernatural, but I'd like to see more of, of that and dark shadows having more of a presence at something like a San Diego Comic-Con. I was talking about how the 66 Batman and Star Trek for the anniversary, they were, that was everywhere uh, at Comic-Con that year, but uh, there wasn't a lot for dark shadows. I think Hermes Press was there with, with Catherine Lee Scott and Lara Parker that year, I'm pretty sure, but there wasn't, you know, I would have liked to have seen more, some something more, to celebrate the the anniversary of Dark Shadows, do you do you find that the I, I feel that Dark Shadows deserves more representation in, in popular culture than it gets, and I'm not sure what that disconnect is, why it's not happening as much as it should. Well, absolutely, I agree. You know, this is a, such an important a part of pop culture in the '60s. I mean, I remember Joan Bennett's famous quote when signing autographs is, "What I feel like a Beatle." Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was so important, you know, but massive amounts of publicity, massive amounts of merchandising, you know, just, you know, it everything was unique for a daytime show to have this much popular attention. Mm-hmm. And but, you know, the difficulties of all that was it just fell off the map for about 20 years, you know, just yeah. this random syndication, nothing nationwide, nothing, nothing to keep it in the uh, popular eye. So you had a whole generation of people growing up without any reference to it yeah and when the six uh when the anniversary came along as you mentioned about comic-con 
And I was thinking the same thing. And I know I mentioned this to various people, you know, aside from a few magazine articles, you know, usually, you know, some trivia thing and, you know, a throwaway magazine. Oh, you know, what else is, you know, having its big anniversary this year? You know, okay, here's this soap opera that nobody's ever heard of. And that was really disappointing to me because I was really hoping there would be some more media coverage. I know that uh, I, I believe that Jim had sent out some publicity releases, but, you know, just... People just didn't get it, so you know, it just didn't make a make any uh, sort of headway. Yeah, and I, I think you're right, I, and that's exactly what I called out when I did the that rant was that uh, that there was that gap in the syndicate during the syndication era because Dark Shadows is such a huge commitment for a TV station to have to keep track of all of those episodes in sequence. Uh, whereas, you know, something like a, like a lost in space or something like that, or a twilight zone where you have a, it's, it's more, it's a more compact uh, package and you don't have to play them and necessarily play them in order with dark shadows. You, there's a lot to keep track of there. And I think a lot, of, there were plenty of stations that were syndicating it, but I, I think they're, not enough people saw it. So there was sort of a gap there that happened for sure. Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of them were PBS. There's places that don't even get PBS back then. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I had no access to PBS growing up uh, because it, the signal just didn't reach to where I lived. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just also it was so random, you know, it missed some of the, uh, the syndication missed some of the major population centers. Uh, you know, uh, it's just hit, uh, hit and miss all over the country. There was never a nationwide ability to do any kind of revival of interest in it during that era. It's, it's a shame, but it, now in the internet age, I mean, we have easier access to it, you know, with things like Tubi and, and home video and things like this. One thing that my friend Ray Castile of uh, Raymond Castile's Basement of Horror YouTube channel, and I will definitely post a link. He does great reviews of classic monster toys, classic Halloween decorations. It's a great channel. I'll put a link to it in the description for the YouTube version of this episode. He suggested uh, the idea of you know, since MPI has this YouTube channel doing clips, you know, for, for sort of the millennial generation that's, you know, short attention, you know, you then they're not going to watch 1200 episodes, but they might watch Barnabas Collins character, you know, retrospective and do like some key clips and, uh, you know, the 1897 storyline and do like a quick overview with some fun graphics with maybe like, you know, a little like a blood dripping down with lightning and then it's, you know, you show a few key clips from that story just to, I think they're, he said they're doing this with other shows, like say the Incredible Hulk and and some other uh, TV shows uh, from the sixties and seventies, maybe MPI could do something like that, where just to kind of put it out there to promote it. Well, you know, they already had the basis for that, for those videotapes, they made like the best of Barnabas, yep. uh, those 1795, 1897, you know, they, they've got already the scenes selected, all they would have to do is then, you know, well, not all, but they would have to do a good show built around it with a good commentator, you know, to introduce all this and to talk about the history and background. But that would be an excellent idea. Yeah, just some something to sort of just help promote Dark Shadows and keep it in the public consciousness. Um, what would you like to see going forward in terms of Dark Shadows itself as, as an IP, I guess, or as a, as a story? or And what would you like to see for the fandom of Dark Shadows going forward? Well, it'd be nice to see a real movie made based on the original series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, one that I would enjoy watching. Yeah. And it would be nice to see uh, uh, maybe a next gen type series. You know, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of storylines that have been done over. But, you know, the question is, you know, just Dark Shadows, you know, was so focused on these core characters it would take a lot of really talented people to do this properly to do a kind of like next gen series i don't know if another reboot uh could be successfully done they've kept trying to do that mm-hmm. uh but uh they would uh you know the 91 series i thought did a good job of streamlining and it's airing was just bad timing all the way around you know with the gulf war uh, causing all the preemptions and attention and focus away if that show had come out a little bit earlier probably later you know just look at all the vampire craze that's been on tv for the last 20 years i think it would have been highly successful at a different time mm-hmm. and uh it's a, a and you know something like that you know i think could work quite well as a reboot i think either one of those could be done it just depends on the talent of the people involved in the writing yeah. all of that and how about the fandom itself what would you like to see happening with the with the dark shadows fandom going forward well, I'd love to see it continue and grow, you know, just uh, I don't know where we're in such a, you know, dead zone right now, time wise. So, you know, with the, uh, you know, time has marched on for a lot of people, you know, I'm a senior citizen now, you know, I would like yeah. to see a younger generation, you know, fall in love with it again. I'd like to see, you know, um, them becoming a very active in it again. Uh, it would have to go on, you know, basically, you know, uh, fan based alone, but that would be just fine. And, uh, you know, just I don't want to see it disappear. You know, I just hope it's a, it can continue and can can continue to gain new fans and probably new interpretations over the years. I mean, look at everything else that gets, you know, revived. Uh, of course, we're talking generally uh, TV shows that get turned into more limited series. And a lot of them haven't been all that successful. They've been disappointing. You know, like the new version of La Femme Nikita, you know, I didn't enjoy as much as the first, you know, other things like that. So it takes really good talent to put together a real reboot that's going to be both modern, but draw on the old traditions. And if that's successful, you know, I can see a lot of new interest coming in. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think you know right now. I'm I'm hoping that uh, Mark Perry's uh, reincarnation goes to a place that will respect the original show and let him express his creativity in having this next generation show. Because it sounds like he really wants to honor the original while also you know moving the story forward. So I, I would be curious to to see how that pans out. I think a next, nobody's done the next other than the, I guess the, the big finish audios, nobody's really done a next generation type story. So it would be interesting to see that, I think. And with regard to the fandom, um, you know, uh, in a few years, uh, not too many years, I guess, through three, four years, it's going to be the, the 50th anniversary of the world of Dark Shadows. Can we expect a 50th anniversary edition or, or revival of some sort? Or is that hoping for too much? <laughs> I think that's not going to work in the internet era. Nobody's interested in print, you know. A lot of yeah, the zines are just have just this, there's there's a shadows on the wall online zine, but, but a lot of the print zines are just you don't see them anymore. Yeah, no, the the print you know print zines you know pretty much gone the way of you know the dinosaur here. I can't think of can't think of any print fanzine for anything in years but, yeah, uh, yeah but you know online online zines you know uh yeah uh there i've seen several of those you know and those are good options too mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? A lot of the, you know, what you mentioned, you know, we've talked about desktop publishing earlier with the desktop publishing. Now I've seen people create, like, they look like magazines that you'd buy in a, on a store shelf, you know, just very, very slick looking. So there is that possibility exists out there for somebody to, to tackle it. If somebody did want to try to do a, a, a new fanzine, uh, that would be amazing. You're right. There's highly sophisticated techniques available so easily these days, you know, just the ability to do so much so quickly when it took, you know, just so long back in the day to do any of this stuff. <laughs> it's just amazing how far the technology has just jumped forward. I mean, when I worked in Silicon Valley, I remember the first year I was there, this one guy came in, you know, uh, uh, to get something typed up where I worked. And he was commenting on, you know, this new computer development they had just done. And he says, we're not even going to patent this because it's going to be obsolete in six months. And, you know, that's wow. basically, wow. you know, the incredible leap in technology in just these 50 years just, you know, amazes me. Yeah, it really, it really is incredible. So, hey, Going hopefully... I'm Going sorry, back but, slightly, you know, yeah. you asked about various storylines that Dark Shadows could have done. I think there's a lot of storylines that Big Finish has explored that certainly could have been adapted too. They've done some really great stories. This, you mean storylines that they didn't that they didn't finish? You mean? Not no, not really. But you know, storylines that they did that could well have worked as uh, if Dark Shadows had gone on and needed new ideas. Some of the concepts they had for their uh, uh, audio tapes could oh. certainly, you know, I mean, they didn't exist then, but the ideas could have been explored because they've done some great stuff. Sure, yeah, there there were some some really Marcy didn't Marcy write one of those? Marcy Robin write one of those? Yes, yes, she did. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I know Stephen Mark Rainey did did a couple of them too. So I mean, it's really uh, there are some some really excellent ones. I really like Kingdom Kingdom of the Dead. I thought that one was quite a good one. That had David Warner in it, as I recall too. Oh, yeah, I've always loved him. He's great. Yeah, he was great. And then they brought in uh, Alec Newman, who was mm -hmm. played Barnabas in the unaired 2004 pilot as David Collins, as a grown up David Collins, which is really really cool. Yeah, yeah, I thought that he was a great choice for that part. You know, yeah. I, I liked him. I liked him in that pilot. You know, I thought he was good for the character. Uh, yeah. A different, uh, different look and interpretation, but still, he did a fine job. Yeah, he's he's a really good actor. And speaking of David Collins, uh, David Hennessy, he's been uh, participating more uh, in gatherings for the actors, at least through Zoom. And there's now Dark Shadows: A Christmas Carol, right? Which is mm -hmm. so exciting. Like he's in it. Alexandra Moltke Isles is in it. Too, which Isn't is that amazing. That is so cool. Yeah. Mitch Ryan. I mean, they have uh, such an amazing cast for that. And of course, Dan Curtis had wanted to do a Christmas Carol as a, as a special on TV using the Dark Shadows cast. So this is actually finally happening, at least in, in online form. So that's really exciting. Well, Zoom certainly, as we know, has, you know, opened up a lot of creative opportunities to people that, you know, uh, fortunately has allowed a lot of people to keep on expressing the creativity and staying in touch in ways that we couldn't even do before. So, yeah. you know, this, this technology has been a big benefit. You know, I was aware of video conferencing for business purposes, but, uh, you know, the absolutely daily use of this, you know, just to keep in touch with friends uh, or have the conversation we're having right now is such a benefit. It really is. Yeah. I, I use it pretty much every day for my classes. I mean, it's just, it's great for anything like that. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I really look forward to that. And hopefully there, there's more of that coming because they did 
title the the group as the sort of the Colin Sports Players of of the Air or something something of to that effect. So, right, so maybe they'll do more more of that sort of thing. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I really really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Is there uh, is there anything that uh, you want to leave fans with before we leave here in terms of uh, your your thoughts on fandom and dark shadows? Well, it certainly has been a great ride. I have enjoyed participating in this fandom for, can you believe it, 50 years now? Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just amazes me to think of the length of the time. You know, it, what, you know, what with the world of Dark Shadows, I think it was probably one of the longest running fanzines ever. I think for the Dark Shadows Festival, I think there might be one science fiction uh, media convention, not Comic-Con or ones like that. Uh, I'm talking fan-run conventions. I think there's only one of the old fan-run conventions that has been around longer than the Dark Shadows Festival. Wow. So, you know, we've got a lot of records set there, and I'm really happy and proud to have been part of it, and I really treasure all the friendships I've made through this fandom. You know, good times all the way around. And it's been great doing this interview with you. I'm glad we could finally get this arranged. Oh my goodness. I, I, I'm delighted that you were able to do this. Thank you for everything you've done for the Dark Shadows fandom. Dark Shadows fandom would not exist in its current state if it weren't for you. So thank you for everything you've done and for inspiring so many people, myself included. So uh, thanks, Kathy. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I hope uh, that you enjoyed it. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. May you enjoy it and have a wonderful new year. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.